0: Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. It's on page 977 of the Black Bibles. If you don't have one, they're right over there. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This is God's word. My name is Ryan Phelps. I serve Grace Point as lead pastor. If you're new with us, thank you for coming. If you have any questions about the church, please come talk to me. I'd love to share more about what we are doing here, what we are mission to do. Uh, before we get to our sermon for this morning, I do want to mention uh, one quick announcement. You should have received a bulletin insert a little white page. Uh, if you are a member of our church, this is a very important time for for you. It is uh, you're one of the opportunities you have to take part in what happens in our church. And we, in a couple of months, are going to elect new leaders for this church. Uh, two new leaders need to be elected. And so, two new elders and then a nominating committee. So read through that if you have questions about that. Uh, Come find me, uh, or especially the team. The team this year is Gil Quick, who's our elder chair, um, Jessica Satrapi, and Glenn Irish. And I would say be prayerful about it. Gil has been talking to me that he sees this as a very serious thing, and I agree with him, that we would come together and by the spirit and in faith, elect new people to lead us down the road. And so would you be prayerful about that? Read through those scriptures that are mentioned. And then if you have any nominations that you want to give, you can give it to them. Their information is in that sheet. Okay, before we get to our sermon for today, let's pray. Thank you, uh, Holy Spirit. Right now, you are bringing us in. You are bringing us in to see the Word of God. This Word that was made flesh through Jesus Christ has now come to us in these words These words that came from the apostles and the prophets, carried along by you, the great spirit, and now intended to be our life. Now intended to fill us up, to illuminate our minds, and to bring us closer to you. So would you make that happen this morning by your great power. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in the book of Ephesians, and this sermon is about power. It is about power. Ephesians 3 and 14 through 19, it's Paul praying, and he's praying for power for the Ephesian church. And I think that power, and you probably agree with me, is not just something that you see, but something that you feel, right? For it to have its full effect, power needs to be something that overtakes you, not just something that, that you see with your eyes or understand with your mind, but that overtakes you, that in a sense overpowers you, that is felt. It is one thing, for example, to see on a TV screen or from afar a great train barreling down the tracks. You see it, you know it. It's there, it's powerful. It is something altogether to stand just a few feet from it. I was we live by some railroad tracks at my house and i was driving and the train was crossing and there was someone who was really interested in trains obviously and he was close and i mean really close like 2 feet away and it was terrifying watching him i could feel the train from my car trains are powerful you don't just see them. When you are close, you feel them. They have to really be felt to get the full effect. The noise of the A-10 Warthog gun. Does you know, anyone know what the A-10 Warthog is? It's been in the Air Force for years, for decades. And there's a reason that they keep on using it. It's kind of an ugly plane. It doesn't move very fast. But it is terrifying. And I know that it's terrifying because we lived on an Air Force base in Florida where they regularly tested this machine gun in the front. And we were probably two miles away from where they tested this, but you always knew it when they did. You could literally feel it when they did. It was so loud and powerful. Now, I had been told that these were loud, powerful guns, but you don't really get the full effect until you are standing within its vicinity. You must not just intellectually know something to get the full effect, but to be in its presence, to feel the power. It is one thing to see and know the power of love between a parent and a child. It is another thing altogether, though, isn't it? To feel it. To know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this bond is unbreakable as a son, as a daughter, as a parent. To know that it is unbreakable, committed, gentle, sweet, powerful. It is one thing to know what the Christian religion teaches, and it's another thing altogether to feel its power. The Christian religion is one for both the mind and the heart. It beckons you to seek a power that is known both intellectually and emotionally, both rationally and spiritually. It calls the entire world to know true power, to know true fulfillment and enlightenment by bringing these things together, heart and mind. And so we actually do not follow the way of the enlightenment philosophers that said, you must cast away your emotions, your feelings to truly know something. And we also do not believe with this newer age that you must only feel it, that the truth does not matter. No, we bring together the mind and the heart. We We bring together the intellect and the feeling. That is, according to the Bible, true spirituality. To not only see something from afar, but to get close, to sense it, to feel it, and then to be changed by it. And this is absolutely what we need. And I would say what everyone is looking for. We who are stuck in fear and self-centeredness, we who are merely scraping at the surface of true spirituality, we who continue to be burdened by the same besetting sins, we must raise our minds and our hearts and expect Power Expect to be overtaken by a power that is impossible to cage in or even completely defined or even that will ever wear out. I wonder if you have ever experienced in mind and in heart the great power of God. Not only do we need this, but that is what is offered to us. So do you have it? Do you have true Spiritual power, that is what Paul prays for the church, and it must be our prayer and our hope today. So let's follow him into this passage. Three points. One, an invitation to spiritual power. Two, the key to spiritual power. And finally, three, the pathway to spiritual power. One, an invitation to spiritual power. An invitation to spiritual power. Would you start with me at verse 14? Ephesians 3 14. This is what he says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with what? Power through his spirit in your inner being. Okay, now go back to those first first few words in verse 14. They are important. He's giving us the reason why he's going to pray. For this reason... For this reason, in other words, what is his goal of this, his prayer? What does he want more than anything else for the Ephesian body of Christ? What is the answer? Well, maybe to answer that, we should answer what he doesn't say. We should kind of fill out what he does not pray for. Well, first, he doesn't pray that the church would grow in a lot of, in, in a lot of great ways, like in numbers, in budget. He doesn't say, oh Lord, I pray that they meet their budgetary needs this year. Now, maybe he did pray that. I don't know. But not here. This is not the message to the Ephesian church. When he bows before God, he is praying for something. Well, he also doesn't pray that they have great cultural influence. That they have a great influence on the culture that they're in. Now, he did want that, right? He did want the people of God to go into the world and have an effect on the world, be, of, be in the world, not of it. He wanted them. How can you do anything? How can you be on mission unless you were in the world? He did want that, but he does not pray that here. He also does not even pray for their physical protection. And that is amazing. Think about that. He knows better than anyone else what is coming. He is writing from prison and he does not write and he does not pray for their physical protection. I I pray for the safety of my brothers and sisters. He could have said that. And maybe he did from time to time, but that is not what he wants the Ephesian church to hear right then. Actually, you know what? I think he intentionally avoids it. He has every opportunity and he does not. I bow my knees. Now, what does he say in verse 16? That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Here is Paul's heart. Here is what the Ephesian church needs. Even more than physical health, the church needs strength of of spirit, power for their inner being. Now, why would he pray that? Why do you think he would pray that? Well, this is what he prayed for often. This is what he wanted often. This was on his heart. And it was on his heart because he knows and he knew that the physical body does not last. The physical body is fading away. Our physical bodies, yes, they are not getting better. They are fading away. Do you remember what he said in 2 Corinthians 4? He said, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The inner self more than the physical body. It was paramount in Paul's mind. He prayed for the power of the inner being. Power for the inner spirit and heart and mind and psyche. The body will falter. It's going to. Your bank accounts will empty. Your worldly power and influence will fade. And in the end, all you will have left is you, your spirit. And so this is where you need power. Here on earth, until you receive that glorified body in heaven, you need power for your spirit. And listen, this, we're going to make a hard turn here. This is not power that is double A power, double A battery power, power. Paul is talking about thermonuclear bomb power. So that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now you may not see it, but this is an invitation to unbelievable power. Life-changing power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you might say to this, and it would be normal for you to say to this, wait a minute, isn't Paul writing to Christians here? Why would he pray that Christ would dwell with them in faith, dwell in their hearts by faith? That is kind of by definition what it means to be a Christian. And so if Christ is not dwelling with them, If he's not dwelling with their spirits, doesn't that mean that they're not Christians? And yet he's writing to Christians. So what gives? Well, here's the answer. There is dwelling and there is dwelling. On the one hand, yes, when you first trust on Christ in faith, he dwells with you by the spirit. The spirit comes upon you and inside of you. You are his. He is yours forever. But what is Paul saying here? That is merely a first step. That is merely the beginning. Your union with Christ is the beginning of a plan to totally reclaim you and me for himself. You, in a sense, are on the precipice of the greatest power in the world. Union with Christ is not only a present reality, but a beckoning invitation to experience unbridled power of the dwelling Christ. I mean, we need to think about this with an illustration. Maybe we need to use that word dwell. Christ, by the Spirit, dwells with you. He is inside you. Why is that? To restore you. To change you. You are almost like a home, a house. Consider the first-time homebuyer. They don't have a lot of resources, and they're going to jump into their first house, or they're not going to buy some mansion. They're probably going to buy something that needs a little to a lot of work. It is far from perfect, this house they buy. It needs improvements in every area, every room. But then over the years, things begin to change. Updates are made. Ugly wallpaper is replaced. The electrical system is upgraded. The roof is fixed and on and on. And 25 years later, this couple, they are in the same house. And maybe the husband remarks to the wife, you know, I really like it here. This place suits us. Everywhere we look, we see the results of our labor. This house has been shaped to our needs and tastes, and I feel really comfortable. Why does Christ come to dwell with us? Why does he take up residence with us? And when he comes, he finds the moral equivalent of a substandard electrical system. Ugly wallpaper, a leaking roof. And so he comes to fix all of that. By his very power, he remodels us. There is work to be done. But his aim is absolutely clear. He wants to take up residence in our hearts that we may become like him. One commentator actually put it that way. The longer he stays, the more we become like him. And so it is a power unlike any other. The power needed to fix us to change our wayward hearts must be absolutely, tremendously powerful. I think that we as men and women in the church are too quick to assume that we can never change, right? We assume that there's no way that our friends, our family, that I could change. And I think this is a falsehood in light of the overwhelming power of God. It is a falsehood to say that we can't change. Oh, they'll never change. When I sin against my wife, happens often. What I want to say, and I must confess to you, what I sometimes say is I am who I am. I can't change This is who I am. You need to accept me as I am. Has anyone ever said that? Now, by the grace of God, that never sits well with me. I think it is a sin to say I am who I am. Because when you do, you are woefully underestimating both the depth of your sin and even more importantly, the unfathomable power of God to change you. God is powerful enough to change even the hardest heart, the worst heart of sinners. Now, how does the power work? Well, I like to think of it like a rushing river in a gorge, a powerful rushing river in a gorge, like the Grand Canyon. It is immensely powerful, this river, but it does take time, right? It does take time for that river to be shaped, for that gorge to be changed, the direction. But here's the thing that I want to get across to you this morning. Maybe this is the only thing that you hear me say this morning. I think you need to feel it. I think you need to feel this power like you would a rushing river. You need to feel this great energy working on you, through you. I'm saying that if you are a Christian, you should often feel the powerful presence and work of God. Blaise Pascal was one of the greatest mathematical geniuses in the history of the world. And when, they, when he died and they got his belongings, they found something was written, actually it was sewn on the inside of his coat. Something that he had written, and it was sewn into the inside of his coat. Now you would think that it was something like a set of mathematical equations or maybe some ponderings on current philosophy of his day. But that is not what he put there. Maybe you've heard this before. Attached uh, inside of his coat was a description of an encounter with the power of Christ. This is what he says. The year of grace, 1654, Monday 23 November, Feast of St. Clement. From about half past ten at night to about half an hour after midnight. fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Certitude, heartfelt joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from him. fire. Is that your experience? I'm not saying it will happen every day. I'm not saying that you base your relationship with God on, only on your feelings, but we do not push them away entirely. There will be times in your lives when you will be overwhelmed by the power of God, his infinite holiness and love upon you, coursing through you. Have you felt this power? Because it does beckon you, right? It beckons you to draw near. That is Paul's prayer for them. He shoots for the heavens. Okay, two, the key to spiritual power. The key to spiritual power. So we might ask it this way. What is spiritual power? What is it? How does it work? Let's read from verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what's the word that you heard a few times there? Because that is the key, at least the first half of this key. What is the power of God? It's love. The power of God is love. We are rooted in love. And then Paul prays that we be able to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love. The Greek, you could actually smash it together, that you may know the greatness of the love of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that the power of God is love. Now, why is love it? Why is love so powerful? So the men's Bible study, we've been going through the uh, first epistle of John, First John. and We were in chapter 4 this week, and John says this there. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There's no fear in love, but perfect love, it casts out fear. Now, what I find interesting about that is that John does not say that fear is cast out by better circumstances. Our fear isn't cast out by having a great life, by making sure everything is set up just right for you, by having enough money. No, that is not what casts out fear. Our fear is not cast out by the absence of bad things. And it's even more interesting that he doesn't say that fear is cast out by perfect power. Fear is cast out by love. Now, why is that? Well, let's, let's do another shift over here. and Let's ask, what is fear itself? What is he talking about? On the next verse in 1 John 4, he says that fear has to do with punishment. Punishment. We fear punishment, but I think that we even need to qualify that. We fear, on the one hand, punishment from God. But according to him, according to Romans 1, what is fear truly? We fear... The punishment of being given over into our sin. That is truly what we fear. And I think that root level, what we are fearful of, is being out on our own. We are our own masters and lords. This is what we wanted. And God says, your punishment is to be given over into that. Without me. For an eternity without God adrift, left to fend for ourselves, left to prove to the world and to each other that we are worthy and that we are good. And friends, there is nothing more fearful than that, than this way of life. And so that is why John comes in and he says that the only thing that casts out fear is love, perfect love, because when we know the love of God we know that we have his power. Listen to that logical connection again. We do not fear because we have his love. And because we have his love, we know we have the great power of God, his strength, his might, his care. Our leader asked us in the Bible study, what would your life look like if you knew this love of God, if you really knew, knew it. And this question, I'm not kidding, left us worshiping. The love of God is the greatest power of all. It is greater even than fear. Now, how do we know we have this love, this power? Because that's the second half of this key. The first key is that the power of God is love. But then how do we get it? How do we have it? So some commentators argue that there is a central word in this passage, in this section. There's one word that every argument, every sentence hinges on. And it's the word comprehend. Comprehend, verse 18. That you may have strength to what? Comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. The love of God in Christ. That's what we're comprehending. It's we are comprehending, we are knowing at some level that Jesus loves us. Now, there's something really fascinating about this word comprehend. It could actually also be translated being ambushed. Funny, it's a Greek word that could mean being ambushed. Yes, it means to comprehend, but it could also mean being ambushed, to be attacked, seized, or Overcome. So when Jesus goes to the boy who has an unclean spirit, this is what they say about him. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. That's the same Greek word there. Seized is the same word for comprehend. Now here's the connection. There is a sense in which the love of God should overtake you, surprise you, ambush you. We do not just know the love of God with our heads. It is something that overtakes us, that we feel down to our cores. It is not something that we just feel intellectually, but naturally and intimately. D.A. Carson, a scholar, says this This love cannot be merely an intellectual exercise. Paul is not asking his reader to become more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ. Or to grasp with the intellect alone how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption. He is asking God that they might have the power to grasp the dimensions of that love in their experience. Doubtless that includes intellectual reflection. But it cannot be reduced to that alone. How does love like that become something that we do not not just know with our heads, but know with our hearts? Carson actually gives an example. He tells about a story when he was a child and he nearly died from a serious illness. He was about 10 years old and he spent several weeks in the hospital and he finally returned home and he still had several months of recovery. It was still touch and go for him. Then one afternoon he awoke to find his mother in his room. Now I'm going to change the story a little bit just to kind of help you help this sink home. So he's in that room. His mom is there and he opens his eyes. And I want you to imagine that she looks down on him with a scowl on her face. And she, his mother, says to him, Donald, I am really getting sick of this. This illness, this laying around. Honestly, I think you're faking it. I think you are lazy. And I wonder if you are wasting my time and my energy. You are so disappointing to me. That little boy would have comprehended something right then, wouldn't he have? He would have comprehended something. Something would have seized him. Something would have ambushed him. And it would be fear. Fear of the knowledge of his own mother despising him. Fearing that he was not secure in his own home. Fearing that he was unloved. And he would not have known this just intellectually, would he have? He would have felt it down to his core, his emotions, down to his psyche. To comprehend something is to go from knowing it in your head to feeling it in your hearts. And for him, if that really was how the story ended... Those cutting words would have lived with him forever. Maybe his lo- mother did not really love him. That is not how the story went. Not at all. D.A. Dawn, he woke up and his, he saw his mother there sitting next to him. And she was sitting there praying and weeping. And even at a young age, he knew what this meant. He felt it, and he said that he cried out to her, Why, Mom, you really do love me? And she ran out of the room. (laughs) Hers was a love that seized, that overtook him. He did not just know his mother's love intellectually. He felt it. He believed it. It was intimate to him. This loving support would last his whole life. The key to spiritual power is to be seized by the love of God in Christ. The key to spiritual power is to know personally, psychologically, emotionally, and yes, intellectually, that God loves you. Do you have that? Is this the overriding and undergirding feeling of your life? Even when you are at your lowest, even when you are totally lost, do you comprehend god's love last point the path to spiritual power the path of spiritual power okay let's close this out by giving some practical applications to this what is the pathway to getting this spiritual power how does that intellectual feeling become an emotional reality paul gives some hints one bow two gather three comprehend comprehend one bow bow Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Now, Paul's doing something that no one did. He's offering a a way to worship that no one did at that time. And, And what he's doing is he's saying that you should bow down when you worship. This is what he is doing. This is so important to him that he will bow. And this is important because no one bowed when they prayed. They didn't get on their knees. They stood when they prayed. Maybe you've seen that in the scriptures. Jesus will say often, when you stand to pray, say this. When he gives the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, what does it say? They're praying while they're standing in the temple. Paul is bowing. Why? He's come into contact with the Father. The Father of all nations. And he knows that only God and God alone can bring the power that he needs. To experience love first is to admit your need of it, to bow in your heart before the Father. You need the Father's power. You need his restorative love. To bow is an act of great humility. It doesn't matter if you're standing or not. Maybe that helps you. I did it this morning as a practice. Bowing before him physically, man, it does something to you emotionally, but he really means that you would bow in your heart. Because you can receive power arrogantly, can't you? You can take it and say, ah, this is for me. You cannot receive love arrogantly. Bow before the Father in humility. Know who you are apart from him and seek him in it. One of my favorite hymns goes this way. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that God requires is to feel your need of Him. What does bowing look like in your life? Going to the scriptures every morning, waking up, maybe on your knees. Bow. Together. Together. Verse 18. May you have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. We can't miss that little word there. Saints. To know the power and the love of God, you must do so with the saints. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say by yourself, he says with the saints. In other words, you have to gather faithfully with others and gaze upon the beauty of God together, on the love of God together. Now, there are lots of reasons for this. Accountability and encouragement come to mind. But I think that maybe because it's in this section where Paul is talking the immensity of God's love, that he knows that you cannot possibly comprehend the love of God on your own. It is too long, too high, too deep, too wide to know and experience by yourself. Maybe like a team of mountaineers, they know far better than to climb Mount Everest by themselves. Let me give you another illustration. This is one of my favorite ones from C.S. Lewis. So, Famously, C.S. Lewis was part of this little group of people, a a trio. They called themselves the Inklings, Ronald, Charles, and Clive. But then tragically, Charles, he passed away. Lewis, to console himself, he thought, well, perhaps this is not to get altogether awful. For now, I will get Ronald all to myself. But then he realizes they started to meet that this was not the case at all. And that's because he said that they each, the three of them, they drew something else out in each other. Their meeting together helped understand each other, enjoy each other better. He writes this way, in each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can truly bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Now Lewis, of course, sees a connection to our spiritual life and he says, in this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. For every soul seeing him in her own way, his or her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. He's talking about in the throne room of grace, Isaiah 6, the angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy to each other. They are uncovering the beautiful power and holiness of God. How will we see and know and comprehend the love of God? We need our fellow brothers and sisters. We must meet with them hear their understandings, their perspectives. In this, you will learn to love the Lord. Lewis concludes, the more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. Last thing, comprehend. This is the last step, comprehend. We will truly be seized by God's love when we truly believe the love displayed on the cross. We will be be seized, ambushed by, taken by, overcome by the love of God in Christ when we understand to its depths the power displayed in the cross. So that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God of Christ. How do we know the love of Christ? It is by his work on the cross. It is unfathomable, unsearchable, infinite. When you look to the cross, you will see and believe and then be seized by his love. And it's because this Jesus said, greater love has no, no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus' love is in his life poured out for us, sacrificed for us. Tim Keller says that if you want information to become sensation, if you want information to become sensation, then you have to look to Jesus. You have to look to the cross. This is the key. You must dwell on God's great sacrifice on the tree at Calvary. Let's just look at each of those words to end. The breadth, the breadth of God's love seen in the cross. It could mean that that's the gospel is for everyone. It is so wide. Its freedom and joy is for everyone. Anyone who comes to him, he will give you rest. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, Jesus said in Revelation 5. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, anyone can be saved. His love, is breadth, It is length. What do you think length means? On the cross, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. This was in the mind of God, right? This is what I'm going to do. And that took a long time. He waited a long time. We sinned against him for a long time, and yet he held out. Jesus is long-suffering. He would wait for us. His love is long. His love has depth. His love has incredible depth. The depths to which Christ Jesus went to love us is far more than we can comprehend, but we are asked to try. The temptation he avoided, the punishment he bore, the loss of love for the, or for, of his father, the sin that he covered, the sin that he covered. Do we have any idea the depth to his punishment, to his sacrifice? Jesus fell into the deepest hole anyone had ever fallen into. For us, height, height. I wonder what that means. Perhaps that means that there is no limit to our joy. Once we have tapped into the power of God, there is no understanding how far he will take us. Jesus does not just want to save us. He wants to save us to an eternity. He wants to take us to the height. He wants us to have his glory, to be happy forever. No fear in life, no fear in death, only delight forever and ever. I'm going to end with a question where our leader at the Men's Bible Study asked us, what would your life look like if you comprehended, if you were seized by the love of God in Christ? Let's pray. This is a power that is too good to be true, O Lord. It is a power that is too crazy to make up. And so all we ask this morning is that you would give us a small taste. Right now, I pray the power of the Spirit would work in the hearts of your people this morning. if they have heard nothing this morning it doesn't matter as long as right now they would feel your presence that they would know that you love them that they would know that you are with them that they would know that you that they now have access to your great power God I pray that for them I pray that for us as a church We will only do what we need to do if we are living by the power of the love of God. We will only do what we need to do in this world for our friends and family, for our neighbors in need if we know your power. Unless we are secured by your love, we will not go out. We will not sacrifice ourselves and so give it to us, O God. You have called us to pray, to ask, And so now we stand ready to receive. Bring your power upon this church. In Jesus' name, amen.